Genre Rama, the podcast for fiction writers. It's Genre Rama. Romance monsters, quests, and fighters. It's Genre Rama. Welcome to Genre Rama, a podcast for people who write about monsters, romance, time travel, good old fashioned chases and escapes, and more. I'm your host, romance and mystery author, Helen Cox. If you want to get started on your next story straight after this episode, check out the free creative writing starter library in the show notes. Now, here's the show. Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of the Genre-Rama podcast. This episode we'll be hearing from Heather's director, Michael Lehman, about his experience of working on one of the most iconic teen movies of all time. A big thank you goes out to film critic and author Mark Searby for connecting me with Michael. Just as we discussed last episode with Sophie McKenzie, there are some pitfalls to avoid when creating fiction aimed at teens. Through Michael's commentary, we will be able to use Heather's as a sort of case study for our own work and get some insight into why this film was so well received and why it's still beloved more than 30 years after its original release. Before we dive into the interview, however, we're just going to hear a word from our fake sponsor. The services advertised in the upcoming commercial are hashtag not a real product. Anybody who tries to sell you this service is an agent of evil and is thus not to be trusted. Need a note to get out of gym class but can't forge your mother's handwriting? Struggling to come up with a plausible excuse to forego detention? Overwhelmed by the charade of leading a double life as a cool riding hot rod to impress the girl of your dreams? Chill. With the Ichluga subterfuge service, there's no need to wig out. No matter your duplicitous dilemma, whether you totaled your dad's 1961 Ferrari or accidentally lost 9,000 pounds to your boss in Atlantic City, the friendly coaches at Itchluga can help you get away with murder, literally, if you want. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hi, Helen. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Oh, very well. <laughs> We're really, really grateful to have you here today to talk about well, basically your experience of directing Heathers, uh, because we're interested in how creative people uh, create things that interest teen audiences and grip teen audiences. And you certainly did that with Heathers, which I know was, uh, you know, some some years ago now. Um, <laughs> but if you wouldn't mind just kind of taking us back to sort of the beginning of you, you getting the script and just maybe telling us a little bit about what your vision was for it as a director, sort of um, what aspects of teen life did you decide you were going to play up with this script? Right. Well, I was a young director trying to make my first movie. I was not in particular looking to make a teen movie, but at that time, the, uh, the, those films were very much in the air. People were making very different forms of teen oriented films. And there were a lot of good ones and there were a lot of terrible ones. And um, my friend Daniel Waters wrote this script, Heather's, a massive tome. The first draft was 200 and some odd pages, which uh, the standard length of a, of a feature film script would be about, I'm gonna say about 110 pages, but for a comedy, even less. 
but closer to, to 90. And, and you translate a page to a minute of screen time generally. So he wrote an epic that would have been a three hour plus movie. And uh, he wrote it on his own. He was a friend of mine. He came to me and he said, I have this script. Some people think it's good. Some people don't get it. You have an agent. Can you help me get it to your agent? And that was my first task with that script. That was the first time I read it. it was simply just to, to help a friend get a script out there. When I read it, I said, you know, this is really good. And I, I didn't entirely even, I, I remember my first read, I didn't quite get everything in the script. I felt like I understood the dark humor, which I was very connected to. And his, Dan's experience in high school was a little different than mine. But there were obviously there were many things that we shared and many things that I felt everybody would share in their American high school experience. So I connected very strongly to the script. I helped him get it to my agent. My agent tried to set it up with Stanley Kubrick or whoever, you know, the best directors at the time were. And when that didn't work, uh, I said, I'd like to try to get this made. And I partnered with Denise Tenovi, who was a producer that knew me and knew Dan and had a deal kind of in place at, at a low budget company called New World Pictures. And that is how I got into it. I was not specifically out to find a teen movie to make. That's so interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize that you were friends. That's really cool uh, that, you know, going back that you have that connection. And that really, this was something that you read and you just felt an affinity with. And that once, you know, other players had passed on it, you decided that you were going to have a go at, at making the movie, which anyone who knows even the smallest amount about the movie business knows is no easy task to get a movie yeah. made. So, so thank you for that. Um, so once you were sort of in production with this movie, which, you know, you might want to tell us a little bit about what that was like trying to get it into production. Maybe there yeah. was a few challenges there, but I'm just wondering what the most challenging aspect was. Um, Cause I know that was a, a decade really rich with teen movies. So was it an easy sell? And then once you'd got it on the road, you know, what were the challenges that you faced? It was not an easy sell. It's, it's never really an easy sell at that time. There were, a fair number of teen movies being made. And there was a little mini explosion of films being made because of financing possibilities that came about through the rise of um, home video, which was still fairly young. And at that point, a lot of companies were trying to make product that they could put out into video rental stores and home video. So there was a, a moment in which the, the gates opened kind of for a bit, but people wanted genre films. They wanted things that they could sell easily based on a title, based on a concept. And um, Heather's is not really that kind of a movie, but it is a teen movie and teen movies were things that were getting financed. So we took it out and people generally understood how good Dan's script was because it was a phenomenal script. It was extremely well-written. It was very original. It reflected on some, you know, kind of classic black comedies, but on its own, it was a it was a very idiosyncratic, really unusual piece. And people got it when they read it. A lot of people got it, but nobody wanted to write the check. And uh, I had shown my student film to an executive at New World Pictures, a guy named Steve White, who had a background in comedy. He understood what the script was. He got what it was about. 
He embraced the darkness of it, and he was willing to make it with a few changes. We also had interest from New Line Pictures, which had made John Waters movies, but had also made um, you know some very successful genre horror pictures. They wanted to make more changes and spend less money, and none of the major studios wanted to have anything to do with it. They they didn't think it was the kind of thing they could do. So we were lucky to have one champion at one company that was willing to make the movie pretty pretty close to the way it was in the script. So that was a big hurdle to overcome. And and it was just luck. It was luck that he liked my student film. It was luck that he got along very well with Denise Denovi, our producer. And it was luck that he recognized the, the qualities of the script and said, I'm going to make this. I'm going to figure out how to get you guys the money to make this. You won't get much, but um, I'll leave you alone as much as I can. And then you went on to make this, you know, gem of a movie that is uh, <laughs> very much beloved by many, has had its own musical made out of it yeah. um, and many other different things, many homages over the years. And in terms of sort of pleasing the teen audience, do you feel that the casting of Winona Ryder and Christian Slater in those two roles were kind of key in that or were there other things that really played a role? C- casting is always key. And in, in our case, we got very, very lucky we we didn't we had a first time director we were making it for a kind of an exploitation film studio we didn't have very much money and getting people to even read the script was difficult so luckily the script was so good that word got out and people read it but we had a very very hard time finding even access to cast Dan, daniel waters when he wrote it had i think he had jennifer connelly in mind for Winona's part. And she would have been great. She would have been fantastic. So I think we managed to get it as far as her agent and maybe as far as her parents. She was only 16. (laughs) And we were told, no. Um, There was a point at which Justine Bateman, who is Jason Bateman's sister and a fine actress and now a director, had been uh, presented with, you know, maybe we could go to her. But that never worked out. And uh, we were searching. We we auditioned a lot of people. We tried a lot of, uh, you know, we went down a lot of avenues that were closed to us. And the way we got Winona, and stop me if this is just too boring, but it, it was interesting at the time that Michael McDowell, who was one of the writers of Beetlejuice, um, read the script. He shared an agent with me and Dan Waters. And he read the script. He said, this is fucking great. We, this movie has to get made. And he said, I know the perfect person to play Veronica. It's this girl, Winona Ryder, who has a lead role in Beetlejuice that's filming right now. And I had seen Winona in um, a movie called Square Dance that was an indie film. And and I'd also seen her in a film, God, I saw her in something else. And uh, uh, it was a thing with Charlie Sheen. What was the guy? I'm blanking on the name of the movie. I will look it up and put it in the show notes. Yeah, yes. Anyway, I'd seen her in a movie and I'd taken note of her and I thought, this girl is really magnetic and she has a great look and she comes off as smart. And and so I said, yes, get the script to her. And then I kept saying to everybody in our team, this girl went on a writer is going to be the one. She's the one. And uh, she got a hold of the script through Michael McDowell. She read it. She flipped for it. She went to her agent. She said, I want to do this. Her agent said, there's no way I'm going to put you in this movie. And she went around her agent 
and insisted that she come in and meet. So when she came to meet with us, it was immediate. It, you know, there was, I was getting in an elevator on the way up to the office where the meeting was being held. And just before the elevator doors closed, Winona ran up and she came in the elevator and I looked and I said, you know, hi, nice to meet you. And I thought in my head, this, this girl has got to be the one. Yeah. And it was just such an amazing dynamic um, between her and Christian Slater on the, on the screen. And you mentioned that um, you, you sort of had to talk to perhaps a little bit about high school experience and how you sort of recognize some of this. And one thing that from a British perspective uh, was really interesting about this film was the language that is used throughout it. Uh, not just the kind of, um, oh, that's you know, that's so very, and, and such we were like, oh, how very, you know, <laughs> interesting that they're using that as a, as a kind of way to say cool. Um, but things like, you know, uh, sort of saying to someone, you know, well, fuck me gently with a chainsaw. We were just like, who talks like this? What What is this? I mean, is this really, I, I'm, I'm a British person. So I, you know, kids don't really speak like that over here. <laughs> is this reflective of the teenage experience? No, no. Nobody speaks like that. Nobody speaks like that. No. And so However... how was it to try and get <laughs> actors to kind of bring that to life? What kind of direction did you give them on those kind of lines? Well, the, the interesting thing is that the cadence of the language and the way the attitude behind it was very much the way teenagers spoke. Okay. And what Dan Waters did was he listened a lot to his sister and her friends and he picked up on the way they spoke. Dan has a very good ear for dialogue. He's also way too clever and he figured out all sorts of ways to create a kind of a you know, a believable teenage slang that was not accurate, but was not very far removed. And some of the some of the great things that he invented never even made it into the film. I always remember he he had an expression that's so turbo. And <laughs> I don't think it's in the movie. I love that. Yeah, I, don't even know <laughs> I think I might resurrect that. Yes. <laughs> but it was such a perfect kind of 80s slang word. Yeah. Because at that time, all the cars had turbo engines. And, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know. That's so great. <laughs> he, just, he has, he's brilliant, and he has a great ear for this. And he worked it in. What I found was that, the, that we tried as hard as possible to cast actual teenagers. And this was something that, that I really felt strongly about, because at the time, the most successful, most watched teen movies were John Hughes's films, which were great. They were her, they're fantastic and they hold up in their classics. He cast 19 and 20 year olds to routinely to play 16 year olds and sometimes 25 year olds to play 16 year olds. And um, that I thought that was a inauthentic and B I felt like there would be something special that we would get from casting actual teenagers. If we could find one's, who could do the, you know, who could actually embrace the language and do all that sort of thing. What I learned was that the younger actors had very little problem adapting this language. They took it on as if it was totally real and they never hesitated and they never felt like they needed to exaggerate the ways in which it wasn't. And, you know, he, they say, how very, they went, how, how very. And that was that. Mm -hmm. They didn't try to go, how very, you know, there, there was something... <laughs> in the actual teenage mind that mm -hmm. helped with the language, I think.
That's great. And I think, you know, you saw the results of being, of taking it one level closer to authentic, you know, than some of the films that we'd seen before. And there've been, you know, I don't know how many articles and probably several books. uh, I know I've read a few on teen movies that talk about, um, you know, Heather's as this kind of um, anti-John Hughes movie, which of course it isn't an anti-John Hughes movie, but just that it presented such a different picture to what we'd been shown almost all the way through the 80s. Um, So it wasn't any kind of, you know, form of protest. It just so happens that it came at the end of a decade where we'd seen a lot of different portrayals of teenagers. And this was something completely different that nobody else had really explored. And that's why I think, you know, people really hold it up as an example. It is funny. We were all very familiar with the John Hughes movies, and my friends and I were very familiar with John Hughes as a writer from National Lampoon. And we were fans of John Hughes, but I didn't like those movies very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, well, that's not fair. I, I had, I had, I was ambivalent about them, to <laughs> say the least. I found them very entertaining. The actors were terrific. They're great. They were very, you know, they, they were teenage fantasies, basically, oh. that, that hooked very well into what it was that teenagers concerned themselves with. And they were very much of the time. And I, I had a bit of a connection to it. I worked on The Outsiders, which was a Coppola movie about teenagers based on a novel. And in The Outsiders, a lot of the Brat Pack kids were mm-hmm. cast for the first time. And so I saw the stream of actors go through and I knew some of the people who were involved in making the John Hughes films, but I wasn't friends with John Hughes. Um, I, I met him somewhere along the way. He's a very nice guy. He was great, but you know, yeah. so this, I felt like, yeah, I, I get where those movies are coming from and they're not far removed from things I've been involved in, but I didn't want to make one of those. No. We didn't want to make a John Hughes movie. We wanted to make something that was a quite a bit darker and quite a bit different in its sensibility. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's why it stands out so much for people as something that is so different from all those other ones. Um, and, you know, I know that several people who were involved with the the John Hughes movies have, have including Molly Ringwald, have come out to talk about some of the scenes that are included in them right now and how you look back. And, you know, like you say, it was very much of its time um and you know heather's is to a certain extent but it's interesting how uh you know i've watched the movie quite recently and it does it's aged very well in so many respects because it is really sort of it doesn't hesitate it's unapologetic on so many levels and i think really a lot about teenage experience is unapologetic you know it's just people are just kind of raw human beings trying to figure out who they are what's going on what this world is that they live in um so bearing in mind that we, we are a little bit you know further down the line and you've had probably time to reflect a little bit about the movie um why do you think it has become uh one of those movies that just resonates with people so much do you think it is just because it is so different or do you think there are some other things that sort of make it this this beacon for people. (laughs) I'm not, I don't entirely understand it. What I do think is that it is genuinely funny. um, And the humor holds up the, the kind of the, the biting humor of it that Dan put in the script and that we managed to find a way to, to make work more often than not, I suppose, which is a pretty good ratio Um, (laughs) that I think still the fact that the humor still holds up and that so many of the themes that are, 
the source of satire in the movie are still active themes that people concern themselves with. That makes it hold up. But I also think there is an element of this is fun and funny because it's a different era. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's 35 years old or however many mm-hmm. years old it is. That's a long time in the world of movies and a long time in the world of teenage movies. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we made the film, there were John Hughes movies. But the, if you looked back, if you'd looked back even 20 years before then, um, well, let's say thirty years. Let's say thirty years. You're looking at things like Rebel Without a Cause that mm-hmm. that no longer had any real relevance. They were classic movies, but they they seemed like documents of a past era. I think that's true of Heather's, but people realize, oh my God, they they actually had those attitudes back then. <laughs> people always think that that you know biting satire and hard hard dark humor is being invented now and never existed. <laughs> So true. <laughs> so, no, no, we also satired these things 35 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely. And because it's satire uh, and it's so biting, I think that's part of what helps it um, hold up now, uh, you know, in the way that some of the ones that were a bit more um, kind of stony faced about it mm-hmm. um, don't. Uh, so the fact that satire does enable it sort of enables people to kind of go along with it and see where the satire goes uh, so I think that really helps so having done this having created this movie and you know you've worked on so many different projects uh, over the years and some of which do again sort of fall into a bracket that you know teenagers might uh, be be interested in um, I was wondering if you could give any advice to anybody creative who's trying to create something for a teenage audience is there anything in particular that you gave thought to and still give thought to when you're doing that? Well, I think you have to you you have to not speak down to a teenage audience. Uh, teenagers are in a very privileged position. They're first of all, they're smarter than they'll ever be in for the rest of their lives. <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> if that's true scientifically, but it feels as if you know they're coming out of childhood in which everything they were told what to do, how to feel, how to behave, they were limited in all these ways. And now they're being given opportunities gradually, and in some cases reluctantly, to expand themselves and to become adults. But they're not yet adults. They still have all the fire and they have all the naivete of of children. But they see the world, I think, more accurately than the rest of us do. You know, by the time you're my age, you, everything has become so repetitive. I mean, I, this is one of the problems of getting old is that the world just keeps presenting you with things that you reinterpret <laughs> in the same way. And teenagers aren't like that. They're looking at the world the way it's being presented to them and saying, fuck this, you know, I or I'm going to take advantage of that. All of these attitudes. Don't talk down to teenagers when you make entertainment that's either about them or directed towards them. You should... As much as you can, if you're not a teenager yourself, try to recapture how you felt about the world when you were dealing with these things. Um, and you'll get closer to the the authenticity that I think teenagers also, their bullshit meters are really high. I mean, you know, I can quibble with who it is that teenagers choose to idolize or whatever. But still, generally speaking, their bullshit meters about the world are are very mm-hmm. finely tuned. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, remember that. Yeah, that that's really great. 
That's really great advice. Uh, and yeah, I know what you mean about them being smart. I wish I'd written down everything I knew when I was 18. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, I've never been so wise in my life. No, you don't <laughs> I had know it all better. figured out, I can tell you. <laughs> um, it's been so lovely talking to you. And I just, uh, before we wrap up, I just would like to uh, let people know who are listening uh, what you're going to be up to soon because you recently directed an episode of one of my favorite TV shows, Veronica Mars, which I enjoyed a great deal. But I was wondering okay. what else you've got going on or what's on the horizon that we can look out for. Well, uh, speaking of Veronica Mars, um, that was, I worked with Kristen Bell, who I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, so I, I did the pilot for the re- reboot on Hulu and mm-hmm. had a great time. And I'd worked with Kristen before on a House of Lies episode. And sh- she, we just finished doing an eight part Netflix limited series called The Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window. <laughs> that maybe get some idea what it is. It is a very dry, very dryly comedic take on female murder suspense thriller <laughs> with Kristen in the lead. It's, I love it. I had such a great time. She is so phenomenal. Uh, we did eight episodes. That sounds fantastic. I cannot wait for that to come out. I'm not sure when it will, but I'll be keeping an eagle eye on Netflix. Early uh, next year. It, early next year. Early next year. Brilliant. Well, that sounds wonderful. And uh, I just, that title is just sheer joy. <laughs> and I'm sure the rest of it is too. Oh, it's um, good. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah, and uh, we'll make sure that uh, everyone knows about the upcoming uh, project in the show notes as well. Good. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. So based on that interview with Michael, here are three questions that it might be worth asking yourself when writing teen fiction. Number one, what protocols can you put in place to make sure the text isn't condescending? In particular, I might be mindful of moralistic preaching. Although there are themes running through my books for adults, about how we live and treat each other, they have to be subtly woven in. Your book is not a TED Talk, no matter the age of the audience. Two, consider what fictional slang you could use for your teenagers. Writers have had real fun with this over the years, particularly with movies like Clueless. Remember what Michael said about Dan Waters' approach. He listened to his sister and then fashioned something that was tonally similar, but altered the wording. How many teenagers have you listened to recently? Many of them post to YouTube and TikTok, so you could get a really good idea of their voice from looking at those videos. It's probably best to get familiar with how your chosen audience express themselves before you get so bold as to represent them on the page. Number three, just as casting is important in a movie, it's also important on the page. This is true of any project, not just teen fiction, but it's worth taking the time to design a character in depth, including their mannerisms, fears, and hopes. Failure to do this could result in a very broad brush portrayal that doesn't really resonate with your readership. Lots of this kind of talk happened in the interview with Sophie McKenzie in episode four as well. So it's obviously a really core part of developing any story, including teen fiction. 
that's it for this week. I hope you found the information helpful. Next episode, we'll be focusing on the genre of mystery, one that maybe I have just a little bit of experience in. (laughs) I hope you have a productive week with your writing and I'll see you next time. Genre-rama, the podcast for fiction writers, it's genre-rama. Romance monsters, quests and fighters, it's genre-rama.